Hello, wrestling fans, and welcome to Shut Up and Wrestle, an old-school wrestling podcast about good conversations and great stories. I am your host, Brian R. Solomon, and this is episode 52, and what a special, unique, and fascinating one it's going to be, because this week I have... The wrestling historian Mike Chapman as my guest. And if you know anything about Mr. Chapman, you know this is going to be a fascinating deep dive. And if you don't know much about him, I will tell you in just a moment. Before I get to this conversation, a couple of things I want to mention. Of course, at the very top, I would just like to say, as so many of us have been, that condolences, prayers, thoughts are offered to the family and the friends of Jamin Pugh, a.k.a. Jay Briscoe, of course, one half of the Briscoe Brothers tag team, who was killed tragically in an auto accident last week. He was, as many of us heard, um, in the vehicle with his two young daughters, who are still at the time of this recording in critical condition following the accident. Just a terrible terrible thing to have to grapple with in the wrestling industry, especially somebody who was held in such high regard and so, so much a part of the wrestling scene of the past 20 years. I would have to call the Briscoe Brothers probably the greatest tag team of the past 20 years to never wrestle in WWE. Uh, A tragic loss, an unthinkable kind of a situation. And as I said, our thoughts, our prayers are with the family and friends of Jamin Pugh, Jay Briscoe at this time. I also want to make mention, as I have recently, of the new book that I have in the works. I have not really been able to get into detail yet, but I just want to confirm again that it is happening. I got further assurance that The book is happening. I'm just waiting on a contract. Once the contract is signed, I will absolutely give you all the details. Just for the time being, safe to say, it will be a wrestling book. It will be a biography of a wrestler, a person in the wrestling business who has never had a book or biography done about them, and who was most certainly worthy of one. And I think a lot of people are going to be pleased and excited when I can finally announce what it is. So stay tuned. But in the meantime, I want you to stay tuned for the conversation that I am about to present to you. So before I get into it, I just want to preface, as I get into a little bit here, that Mike Chapman is somebody who's done a lot of work on the early history of the pro wrestling business in the early 20th century, and even on amateur wrestling and how those two worlds connect. And his views have often been debated and in conflict with the views of many other wrestling historians, particularly when it comes to the nature of works versus shoots. 
in some of the early matches in wrestling history with people like Frank Gotch and George Hackenschmidt and Joe Stecker. And Mr. Chapman has always been of the conviction that wrestlers like Gotch and Hackenschmidt were engaging in shoot wrestling matches in those early years. And while I know that there are some out there, some other historians, and I know Mike is too much of a gentleman to say, but I know we all know people like Dave Meltzer and Steve Yoey and other historians that take a differing view. And that's okay. I, I really believe there's room for all views. And I tried to include all views when I wrote Pro Wrestling FAQ, which is how I first got to know Mike Chapman. But I wanted to give him a platform this week on my show to present his view, to present his perspective and his memories. And I am telling you, this is a conversation that you're going to love, especially if those are topics that you have a great interest in. So I'm going to take you to that conversation right now. Okay, so it is my honor and my privilege this week. This is going to be a very special conversation and one that I'm thrilled to have. I'm honored to welcome somebody who is a prolific author, a prolific and well-known wrestling historian. He's a five-time National Wrestling Writer of the Year. He is in 11 Halls of Fame. He's a winner of the Jim Melby Award. He is he's got to be one of the one of the world's leading experts on people like Frank Gotch, Danny Hodge, Joe Stecker, Luthez. He's had a career that I, I'd like to say more than anyone I could think of has really worked to bridge the gap and really cross the chasm between the worlds of amateur wrestling and the worlds uh, of professional wrestling. He's one of the people behind the creation of the International Wrestling Institute and Museum in Iowa, which of course contains the George Tragos and Luthez Professional Wrestling Hall of Fame. I am talking about Mike Chapman. Welcome to Shut Up and Wrestle, Mike. Thanks for coming on. Hi, Brian. Uh, very glad to be here, and I've read your biography, and you've had a, quite a career, too, and I've got Pro Wrestling Facts right here in front of me. It's a terrific book, and so I'm delighted to be talking to you, too, about the history of this grand sport. I think it's great because, you know, that the and thank you for that, by the way, when I when I was writing that book years back, uh, that was the first time that I had corresponded with you. And I thought it was very important to speak to you because I, I was trying to write a comprehensive history of of the entire business over as much of a period of time as I could cover. And for people that know your work, and I'll say this, you know, before you get into it, for people that know your work, they know that one of the things that you have championed is the idea that a lot of the, the early days of wrestling, more than I think a lot of us realize were shooting matches in your view. And I know that there are some, uh, historians out there who who don't agree with that view, but I was fascinated to learn more about that view that those Gotch and Hackett Schmidt matches were shoots, and that Gotch's reputation is really different from maybe who the real man was. And I, I tried to get as much of your views into that book as I could, and I know <laughs> that I tried to balance it with everyone's views, which I don't know if some if it was something that you were thrilled about, but. But I wanted to be as fair as possible and give as many sides as I could. But now that I have you here, and it's just the two of us, I'm really fascinated to learn about your perspective. 
Well, thanks, Brian. And I do think you were very fair to the to the legacy of Frank Gotch. And, and I totally recognize that there's different feelings and viewpoints out there. And that's only to be expected, whether you're talking about the great political leaders of our era or back to the days of Ulysses S. Grant. I just read the great biography by Brett Baer on Ulysses S. Grant. And Lincoln, there's even controversy about Lincoln and George Washington and Thomas Jefferson. So it only stands to reason there would be uh, controversies about great figures like Babe Ruth and Frank Gotch. But I have, prob- I have probably spent more time, Brian, really delving into the personality and, and the char- character of Frank Gotch. And I firmly believe you can't make an assessment of what happened in 1908, 1909, 1910, 1911 without really knowing about the character, the people you're talking about. When I wrote my first major book called From Gotch to Gable, A History of Iowa Wrestling, which was published by the University of Iowa back in 1981, I had gone up to Humboldt, Frank's hometown, and I spent three days there. I actually talked to an attorney who was in his 90s who had known him when he was a little boy, when the attorney was a little boy. His eyes got teary-eyed, and he got his, his voice quivered with emotion when he talked about the kind of man Frank Gotch was. And I went through his scrap, personal scrapbooks, by the way, which have disappeared, which is a shame. Mm. I saw a telegram to him from Teddy Roosevelt. I saw his correspondence. Um, I, I just know a lot about the character of the man. And that's how I formed my basis, Brian, on who I think he was and if he would have faked matches, if he would have double-crossed Hackenschmidt and things like that. And we can get into why he wouldn't have needed to double-cross Hackenschmidt as we get going. That's great. And and that really is the kind of stuff that I'm I'm fascinated by because, look, as we all will admit – Part of the struggle here that we all face, historians, writers, or even just interested fans, is that all of this stuff is before living memory at this point, especially. And so there's no, uh, there's always going to be a cloud of mystery. And and not only that, but even when when people sort of have a theory that they put out there, there's always going to be people that doubt it because I'm sure you've heard this throughout your your whole professional life the 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 constant refrain of well you weren't there how did you know you, you know so we're faced with that where we don't have the video evidence like you'd have today if you're researching somebody we don't have recordings and it's very hard to get to the bottom of it and and really truly understand and i think maybe that's why so many people are fascinated by it like especially when you talk about the two um gotch and hackenschmidt matches it just seems to be this endless debate that's gone on forever as to whether those matches were worked or not. And, and I'm not sure what, you know, Hackenschmidt lived a lot longer than Gotch did. And so maybe his view of things might have um, kind of uh, what's the word colored or shadowed uh, the way that the matches were interpreted or the way that Gotch as a human being was interpreted because I'm assuming that they that he was not one of his favorite people. No, you're exactly right. And uh, one one of my best sources was Lloyd Appleton. He was from Iowa. He was a silver medalist in the 1928 Olympics, and he went to West Point as assistant coach to Tom Jenkins. And I talked to Lloyd Appleton. Bless his heart, he's gone now. 
And uh, I talked to him when I was writing the book, Gotch the Gable. And I said, what did Tom Jenkins tell you about Gotch? And he said, well, he didn't want to talk about him. As soon as he found out I was from Iowa, he didn't want to talk about him. (laughs) And so I kind of pressured Lloyd. I said, well, I'm sure it came up. You worked with him for eight years. And he said, well, Mike, at one point, several of us were sitting around. And after Jenkins had got to know me and trust me a little bit, I looked at him and he looked at me and I said, come on, Tom, how good was Gotch? And he said, Jenkins looked at me and his face kind of changed his expression. He says, he beat Hackenschmidt twice and he beat me five times. I guess that's all we need to know. He was the best catch wrestler ever. And Zabisco said that about Gotch. Jack Curley said that about Gotch in in an incredible uh, article in Ring Magazine. He said, I thought for sure or Hackenschmidt would win that second match. I was wrong. Uh, Gotch is a better man. Uh, Dr. Benjamin Roller couldn't stand Frank Gotch personally for whatever reason. There's egos involved in this sport and martial arts like you can't involve, uh, believe. And after the match, he said, um, I concede that Gotch is the best catch wrestler ever. And so does Hackenschmidt. And he says, I thought my man would win, but he, he was just too scared. And that brings up a point about was his knee injured. Luthez, who I love dearly, and he was like a father figure to me, said Ad Santel told him to his face that he injured uh, Hackensmith's knee on purpose. The gotcha's people paid him to do it. I said, Lou, we can agree on one thing, can't we? That Gotch was a pretty smart fellow. He invested all of his money in, in real estate, kind of like Brock Lesnar has done. He was on the board of a bank, of an electric company. He was part owner in a car dealership. Uh, he was being courted by Hollywood to make movies. There was even talk of him running for governor in Iowa in 1916. I actually have the article. And he was no dummy. How stupid would he have had to have been to have agreed to pay somebody like Ad Santel to hurt Hackenschmidt, knowing he could be blackmailed for years, or that that truth would that that story, not the truth, would seep out and damage his reputation. First of all, Gotch was a tremendous trainer, just like Dan Gable. He ran and ran and ran and ran. He knew he could tire Hackenschmidt out the first match, which he did. He was much better, Gotch, three years later. He had no reason in the world to worry about that match. He knew he was going to win. It'd be like Dan Gable, one of my dear friends, he won 181 straight matches in high school and college over seven years. Then he lost his last match to Larry Owings, 13-11. to They had a rematch a year and a half later to make the Olympic team. Gable beat him 8-1. to Would Gable, I said to Luthez, would Gable have paid somebody to hurt Owings? He says, well, no, of course not. Said, now we're talking about people's character and their belief in themselves. There's no way Gotch would have paid somebody to hurt Hackenschmidt because it would have seeped out and it would have damaged everything he stood for. So, and there's other reasons too. I, I can go on and on and on and on, but uh, I'll let you have the horn for a while. Well, well, you know, the, the Ad Santel story, of course, like a lot of us, I, I read that in, in Lou's book in Hooker where he repeats the story now and and I've and I've even heard it told where it was different people other than Ad Centel that did it. But now, assuming that Lou is telling the truth that he heard Centel tell him this, assuming that, why would Centel be repeating that if it if it didn't happen? Sure, ego, 
and wanting to be somebody special. You know, why does anybody make up anything about themselves? Um, you, you know, we see it in politics all the time. Uh, I'm not going to get into name calling, but people exaggerate their political uh, expertise and resume all the time. People, uh, they do that. Ad Centel had a huge ego, and maybe wanted to impress on this young kid uh, that he that he did that. Uh, I, I'm looking for it right now, but Roller says how the knee popped right there when he was working with him. And he says, it was no big deal. Curly actually brought in, um, brought in an expert, a physician to look at it. Here you go. Uh, Curly writes that Hackenschmidt was in sensational shape and then wrenched his knee in a workout with Roller a week before the match. Some have claimed it was Ad Santel who did it, but nowhere is Santel mentioned by anyone. Santel probably wasn't even in camp. Early called in Dr. McNamara, a physician well-known in Chicago. He examined Hack's injury and pronounced it trifling. But to satisfy both Hack and myself, said Curley, that his diagnosis was correct. Had x-ray photos taken of the knee. They bore out his diagnosis absolutely. And back to Dan Gable. Prior to the 1972 Olympics in in Munich, Dan hurt his left knee really bad. His personal physician said, I'm not sure it'll last through the Olympics. Dan just looked at him and said, it'll last. He taped his knee up. In the first match, he's head-butted by the Yugoslav, gets his eye split open, his eyebrow. He gets seven stitches after the match. Dan Gable wrestled six matches in the 1972 Olympics and gives up zero points with a badly damaged left knee and a split eyebrow. I mean, Roller said a game man would have just shrugged off what happened to Hackenschmidt. He says he saw him sitting on the bench the day before the match at night looking out over Lake Michigan, and he said he had lost his nerve. Hmm. Sometimes matches are won an hour, two hours, three hours before the match when your nerves get the best of you. And I think Hack. Now, by the way, I want to say this too, Brian. I'm a Hackenschmidt fan. I'm a devout weightlifter. I've lifted weights nonstop for 62 years. I benched 440 in a competition. I once saw an article that George Hackenschmidt benched 330 in a wrestler's bridge. I decided I was going to do that. I worked for a year and a half doing bridges off my neck and three people hoisting the weight up to me. I eventually bench pressed 330 pounds on my neck in a wrestler's bridge, weighing 205. Hack weighed about 230 when he did it. Um, I now have neck damage. <laughs> oh, no. Well, as long as and you I didn't... had a surgeon, a surgeon uh, cut my neck open six years ago, moved some vertebrae around. He said, how'd you mess that up so much? And I told him I used to do bench presses off my neck in a wrestler's bridge. And he looked at me. He was like 60 at the time. He said, are you nuts? I said, I was trying to match George Hackenschmidt. The point of this long story is I'm a huge fan of George Hackenschmidt as a wrestler, as a person, as a thinker. I have five of his books right here, one of them, Man and Cosmos. He challenged Einstein to a debate on his theories of relativity. Uh, I think the world of Hackenschmidt. Uh, he just couldn't handle the catch style that Gotch favored one of the things that I've read about him in later years, because like I was saying, you know, he lived a lot longer. He lived into the 1950s, I believe. And yeah. um, he he seemed to be very bitter 
about Gotch and about the match. And it was, I guess, the kind of thing where if you you knew better than to bring it up around him, it wasn't a conversation he liked to have. And I guess that may have led some people to assume, again, like I said, the, the theory that people had was that Hackenschmidt was bitter because he got double crossed. I'm sure you've heard that story too. Yeah. He he felt like yeah, sure he, I have. He and thought I he was. People, he, no, go on. Show me some evidence of the double cross. What evidence is there other than Hack being bitter? And frankly, back to my original point, Gotch would have been a fool to agree to anything. He knew he was going to win. Right. Well, you know, it, it, it's interesting because they always say <laughs> that the history is written by the by the winners or in this case by the survivors. So, you know, because the other thing that seemed to suffer was Gotcha's not just the the nature of the matches, but even like you said, the character Gotcha's reputation as a person, because, you know, in later years he was characterized in a very different way. I've seen him characterized as, like you said, a dirty wrestler or a bully or, or kind of a, a con man. And um, it kind of sometimes seems like it's the fact that he unfortunately died so young and maybe a lot of the people that didn't like him or were rivals of him um, outlived him. So they got to sort of uh, dictate the story. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and you might be referring to a story that I wrote, the legendary John Grimmick. Do you know that name? Yes. John, John Grimmick uh, is a legendary bodybuilder. He's the only man to win the Mr. America title twice after he won it the second time in 1941. They said, if you've already won it, you can't enter it again. And he went on to become an esteemed writer and journalist for Strength and Health magazine and Muscular Development. Well, I used to write for Strength and Health, and I stopped in to see him one time when I was coming back from a convention in Washington, D.C. This is, gee whiz, Brian, this was 35 years ago, and I'm sitting in his office in York, Pennsylvania with the legendary John Grimmick, and he was in the 1950 Mr. Universe contest with Steve Reeves in, of Hercules fame in London. And so I'm sitting there talking to John Grimmick, and I see he's got a picture of Hackenschmidt on his wall behind him. And I said, golly, Mr. Grimmick, did you ever meet Hackenschmidt? And he says, oh, yes, at the 1950 Mr. Universe contest in London, London, I won it. And Steve Reeves was second. And he said, George Hackenschmidt was the honorary judge. And then John Grimmick looks at me, and he says, Mike, I'll never forget what happened at the banquet that night. We're all sitting around uh, the the top place winners and the judges and the people putting it on. And George Hackenschmidt is sitting there. And after dinner, one of the men says very politely, Mr. Hackenschmidt, can you please tell us about your matches with Frank Gotch? That his whole expression changed. He dropped his right fist on the table and said, I will not talk about Frank Gotch and got up and walked out. So is this is he still working that match thirty three years after Gotch's death? I mean, it, Grimmick said we were all shocked, and he said it actually. He, these people had huge egos, and you can't blame them. Gotch is on the front page of every major newspaper in America. Uh, Seventeen years after he died, Harley Davidson is still using him uh, in an advertisement for their motorcycle. I mean, were all these sports writers duped into 
into thinking that these worked match that these matches and contests were worked, that they were all being played for fools. Uh, now, let me tell you about Gotch's reputation as as a as a tough wrestler. In 1906, he wrestled a man by the name of Leo Pardillo in Chicago. And Nat Fleischer, one of the most respected writers of all time, told his readers that Pardillo had earned a reputation, quote, as a fighter and bone breaker. In the match, Pardillo immediately started his rough work and began using his elbows and fists when in close. Fletcher describes how Pardillo pulled Gotch's hair till it fell out in a clump. But all Gotch did was use wrestling techniques to win the match, fair and square. According to Sal Plex, writer for the Chicago Examiner, Pardell put up a wicked fight and used a sufficient quantity of Marcus of Queensbury boxing rules to bring for the hisses of the crowd. He also did some nasty elbow work when on the mat and grabbed and capped the climax by grabbing a handful of Gotch's hair. Another writer describes that when Tom Jenkins wrestled McLeod, the two men freely punched and slapped each other, and he said Jenkins used his callous hands to tear McLeod's face, neck, and arms. Um, That was the style of wrestling back then. And after Gotch's first match with Jenkins, Jenkins beat the crap out of him by using the cross face, or they called the further arm. He broke his nose. Gotch was spitting blood when he went back to his corner. Uh, why doesn't anybody ever talk about that? Uh, it's always Gotch is the dirty wrestler. He just gave him tit for tap. You gonna you, if you're gonna go after Frank Gotch, uh, he's gonna he's gonna respond just like a Mike Tyson or a Jack Dempsey would. I think one of the great losses that that I, in my opinion, is you know I've heard and I've read that. At the time, there was footage of the of the match of the century, the 1911 match, Gotch and Hackenschmidt, and that it was shown at the time in newsreels. Um, but of course, none of that footage has seems to have survived. And I kind of hold out hope maybe that one day somebody will find it somewhere. I mean, we we do have sort of bits of footage of wrestling even from that era, very little of it, but, but there's no footage of that match there. There is photography, but there's no video footage. And that really is one of those things that I sincerely hope turns up someday. Well, that that's a great point. And there's a lot of boxing and baseball from that era. And about 15 years ago, a reporter from the Chicago Tribune called me up and he wanted to do a long story on the match of the century between Hackenschmidt and Gotch. And he actually drove all the way out here to Newton to spend some time with me and then went up to Humboldt. And he wrote a terrific story. And in the story, he quotes me as saying, somewhere in Chicago, in somebody's attic, there's a copy of that film. Because I have a picture, Brian, of the of the flyer that was set out. Say, so see the match of the century, Gotch and Hackenschmidt. Uh, it's... Uh, um, it was sent to movie theaters all across the country. And like you say, there's a lot of steel photographs. And then this writer from the Tribune actually put a little ad in the paper saying, if anybody has any knowledge about this film, please contact me or Mike Chapman. Now, about 20 years ago, a guy out of the blue called me from Montreal that I have footage of the Gotch Hackensmith match. And I said, are you serious? 
kind of a cocky guy. And he said, yes, I am. And I said, asked him how he got it. And he gave me a long convoluted story about he stumbled across it in a antique store with a really aged man who was near death and was going out of business. And I begged this guy, says, I'll get on a plane and fly up there just to see it. Oh, no, I'm not going to show it to anybody till I decide what I want to do with it. And I said, I'll pay you $100 just to sit in your room and watch it with you. I'm not asking for anything other than to see it. Oh, no, no, I'll get back to you. Let me think about it. And I had his phone number, and I called him several times over the next month or so, and he finally said, it's mine. It's a treasure. I'm not showing it to anyone. Don't call me anymore. I don't know. Did he have it, Brian? Or wow. Playing a, a nasty game with me or what? I, I don't know. But Boy, that's that the is strange. I've ever come to finding it. Yeah, I've never heard that story. You know, now, now it's got me thinking, was this guy a crank or does he really have it? Oh, that is fascinating. Hopefully, hopefully. Yeah, and my wife... I've been married to the same woman for 54 years, and she's a retired banker, and so she's very thorough when she listens to people, and she actually heard my side of the conversation, and she said, he's 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 a fraud. He doesn't have it. And I said, well, why would he do this? Um, why would he go through all this? She said, because he knows how bad you want it, and he's just having a game, playing a game. And I said, well, maybe so. You know, I mean, that seems to be the likely explanation, because if you really did have it, you would also even even if he chose not to show it to you, you would think that it would have turned up at some point by now that he would have shown yeah. it to somebody. But, um, yeah. you know, I remember back in the last in the last conversation, Brian, yeah. I told you I told him I'd pay him a hundred dollars just to <laughs> sit there. And in the last conversation, I said, I'll give you a thousand dollars just to let me sit there and see it. Well, I'll consider that, but I, he said, I know I've got something really special here, and I'm not sure how many people I want to share it with, you know, blah, blah, blah. Well, if which he's not going to share it Caddock with you. Stecker. Yeah, which brings me to the Caddock Stecker film, of course, and I'm sure you've seen versions of that on YouTube. Yeah, I was, I was going to mention that because at the time, years ago, when I when uh, I took an interest in trying to hunt down the earliest kind of wrestling footage that was available. This was before YouTube existed. This was in the days of, of tape trading and things like that. To my knowledge, and I this is like about 25 years ago, the earliest known footage was the, the, the Caddick, the Earl Caddick, Joe Stecker world title match from Madison Square Garden in 1920. And uh, now since that time, though, there have been a few other things that have popped up that are even older. I think there was footage of, oh, I'm trying to think if it was an Ernst Rober match or something. Yes. Um, uh, my son found that. My son worked in uh, D.C. at the United States Capitol for three years, and my son was quite a high school wrestler. And uh, uh, he went over to the National Archives several weekends in a row looking for the Gotch Hackenschmidt match, and he found an exhibition match between us, Ernest Robert and somebody else and made a copy of it. And we used to have that in the, uh, in the wrestling museum here. And we would show it to people who wanted to see it, but it's, it's an ex it's an exhibition. It's not a real contest and, uh, it's fun to watch, but yeah, you'd think that gotch Hackenschmidt match would show up somewhere, Brian, but not so far. No, but you know, the, the photography is great from that. I mean, it's surprisingly good and, and does give you an idea 
of of just the moment. I know there's one particular photo. I'm sure you've seen them all that I love so much where it's it's this moment where it's Gotch in the ring with his trainers and they're kind of leaning against the ropes. I assume they're waiting for the match to start, maybe waiting for Hackenschmidt to come out or something. And Gotch is just kind of looking out into the crowd and he's got this extremely confident kind of smile or smirk on his face. And I just think it's such a telling photo. I love it. It is. And he went in there with the same confidence Muhammad Ali went into his fights with. Not quite the braggadocio of it, but if if you're going to go in uh, to the ring against uh, these top fellas, you better be confident. And like Dan Gable always said, confidence comes from one thing, your physical preparation. Dan was the most physical college wrestler ever. Well, let me qualify that. He and Dan Hodge are the most physical college wrestlers ever. And they were so confident because they knew what they could, that they could wrestle for two and a half hours. And Hack knew he couldn't go that long. Big muscles like Hack's tire out. They get into oxygen debt. Carl Gotch, who I'd never met, called me up out of the blue about six months before he died. Brian, Mike Chapman, Carl Gotch, do you know who I am? I said, yes, sir, Mr. Gotch. <laughs> and we talked for about an hour and a half. He's a big fan of Frank Gotch. And he said all this talk about him oiling his body is total nonsense. He would have been as, uh, uh, he would have gotten hack as slippery as him. He said everything they said about that match is just a lie. He said uh, George was a muscle-bound, European, slow, methodical-style wrestler. He said, I saw that all the time in Europe. And Gotch was lightning quick and bobbed and weaved and moved and and when you read what the historians of the era say about Gotch, Brian, they all say the one thing that set him apart from the other heavyweights was his lightning quickness, that he moved like a lightweight. And, you know, Vern Gagne and I were very good friends. I'd been to his house many times, and I went to his funeral, and he came to all our inductions here and actually put the sleeper hold on a big farm kid here one day. It was hilarious. Uh and him and I were sitting here one time talking, and I said, Vern, who did all the old-timers, Tony Stecker and all those guys, say was the best? And he said, they all said Gotch was the best. Uh, and Vern had no reason to say that. He'd never met Gotch. Uh, Gotch died before he was even born. He said, you talk to any of the old-timers, and they just say, it was Gotch. And I want to tell you a quick story about Dan Hodge. Now, three-time NCAA champ, never lost, never taken down. The only man in history to win national titles in boxing and wrestling. 17-0 and with 14 knockouts as an amateur. So one time after our inductions, Bret Hart was hitting here and Harley Race and Dan Gable was even here and uh, Gene LaBelle and Harley uh, Race and everything. And we're talking and one of the guys looks at Harley and he says, Harley, the toughest guy you know. Just then, Hodge was walking by carrying a plate of hors d'oeuvres, <laughs> sipping a Dr. Pepper. That's what he always drank. And Harley says, you see that guy right there? And we all looked up, you know. And of course, I was a huge Dan Hodge fan. He says, you tell me how you're going to beat him. Are you going to out- outfist him? He was 17-0, national champion. Are you going to outstrength him? He crushes apples and breaks the handles off pliers. Are you going to out-technique him? He was three-time NCAA champ, four-time AAU national champ, Olympic silver medalist. Uh, are you going to out-tough him? 
I don't think so. And then he smiled and he said, and he's got a mean streak once you challenge him. He says, right there's the toughest guy you'll ever want to see. <laughs> and that's uh, yeah. Brad Reingans is one of my best friends, literally one of my best friends. And uh, eight-time Greco-Roman national champ, two Olympic teams, trained people like Brock Lesnar. And uh, he says, Dan Hodge, he says, everything he knows and has heard, he said, everybody stood in awe of Dan Hodge. So um, I always thought the two greatest pro wrestlers of all time, three, the three greatest pro wrestlers in my estimation are Frank Gotch, Dan Hodge, and Luthez. And the, the interesting thing to me about someone like a Danny Hodge or, or a Luthez is, you know, obviously everyone knows how tough they were and how dangerous they were and how skilled they were. But they're different because they also happened, they came along a lot later in the business. They came along at a time, you're talking about 50s, 60s, and 70s, even, especially with Hodge, where there sure. didn't seem there didn't seem to be a lot of room anymore for, you know, the kind of shooting in wrestling that would have really tested them. So they they oh, I Oh absolutely. You, you know, they must have had a very different experience. I mean, can you imagine a Hodge or a Thez? living in the time of gotch do you, do you know what i mean what would that have been like <laughs> yeah you're exactly right and i asked luthez one time i said you know my first major book was two guys named dan about dan gable and dan hodge and i wrote it in 1976 and i was sports editor of a major newspaper in colorado and i had tried to get a hold of dan hodge i'd never met him at that point and I couldn't. He had an unlisted number. So I called up Vern Gagne, and Vern and I would become really good friends. And I said, would you intercede for me? And he said, sure, I'll be glad to. The next day, Dan Hodge called me. Hi, Mike. This is Danny Hodge. Vern Gagne said I should talk to you and that I could trust you. So I drive down there with a friend to Perry, Oklahoma, and I spent two days there and got to know this guy. And what a wonderful human being. But he's got a real mean side to him. And if you push Danny Hodge, you're in trouble. And Fez, I said to Fez, why wasn't he a bigger name, really? And he said, well, there's two reasons. He didn't like to go far from home. He liked to stick in the Southwest. He said, Mike, a lot of the pros were too scared of him. They didn't want to get in the ring and take a chance of ticking him off. Um I could tell you two stories about two, three guys, really, that tested him. It did not go well for them. And uh, they were big, big names. And, well, I'll tell you one of them, because you, sure. you would have known him. It's Jack Briscoe. Ah, and I was going to ask you where he fit into all this. <laughs> Jack's a tough old boy. Uh, Blackwell, Oklahoma, NCAA champion. Really is a tough, tough tough guy. Of course, Jerry Briscoe, I got to know very well through the museum, and they both stood in awe of Dan Hodge. There's a legendary story uh, about Briscoe when he was NCAA, or I'm sorry, NWA World Heavyweight Champ, and Hodge was the light heavyweight champ, and a bunch of people started pushing him. Hey, Oklahoma, Hodge, Oklahoma State, Briscoe, you guys need to wrestle. They got out on the grass late at night and wrestled, and Briscoe told me the story. He just kind of smiled this is Jack Briscoe. And I said, how'd it go? And he says, not very good for the kid from Blackwell. He <laughs> himself. He says, I learned a lesson that, that day. You don't mess with Danny Hodge. And uh, Pat O'Connor, who I got to know pretty well, uh, told me he, he learned the same lesson. And Pat was a good old wrestler, good amateur wrestler. 
that you don't mess with Danny Hodge. I found that out too. Let me, let me, I want to read you something, Brian. Sure. Lopez wrote to me personally. Listen to this. Okay. A great pro wrestler has never, was never determined by the best two out of three falls. Greatness, quote, was determined by the fans. How many would pay to see him again? The difference when I came into the business was that we still had respect for each other based on two out of three falls. Today, no one, and he's underlined it, promoters, fans, or pro wrestlers cares or even knows. Luthez, Chapman Holmes, September 14th, 1993. When I set up the Pro Wrestling Museum in Newton, I was publisher of the newspaper. And Lou and Charlie, his lovely wife, who we're very close to, we just went to Norfolk and spent a lot of time with her last year, came and stayed with my wife Beverly and me for three weeks while we set up the museum. And Lou used to come in and work with me, and then at night, We'd sit on my back deck under an Iowa stars and talk, sip wine and talk about the history of wrestling. He told me so many stories, Brian, about the old times and what it was like. And his first pro match was in Waterloo, Iowa, my hometown. He was 18 years old, 19 years old. And they got in a van and or not a van, an old station wagon, drove up here from St. Louis and wrestled in the little tiny uh, baseball stadium that still stands there for $10. And the NWA was formed in Waterloo, Iowa, in the President Hotel in, in 1948. And the guy running the President Hotel, his name was Lark Gable, Dan Gable's grandfather. I mean, just the, the stories just go on and on and on. And Dean Rockwell is considered one of the people that turned the tide at D-Day. Stephen Ambrose, in his book D-Day, says it was a high school wrestling coach from Detroit, Michigan, named Dean Rockwell, who turned the tide at D-Day. So years later, Dean Rockwell donates his entire library of 400 books to our wrestling museum. He's walking around the museum. He'd never been here. He's 90 years old at the time. He walks into the pro wing, and he's just standing there looking around, and he looks at a picture of Frank Gotch, and I'm thinking, "Uh uh-oh, because a lot of the amateurs didn't want me to have a pro wing to it. Right. I thought, this is a pure amateur wrestler. He coached the 1964 Olympic Greco-Roman team. He helped form the Michigan Wrestling Club. And I looked at him and I said, does having a pro wing here bother you? And he looked at me and he says, Frank Gotch was my hero when I was growing up. Mm-hmm. I said, wow, really? And he said, let me tell you about my meeting with Luthez. He said, Luthez is coming to Detroit. And I'm on the opening card. You know, I'm, he, Dean was about 6'2 and 240. That I'm just a tough old farm kid. And I'm on the opening card, and Thez is the world heavyweight champion. And he's making 40 times what I am. And he says, I walk into the Y the night before the match, and there's Thez working out. And I walk up to him, introduce myself, and he's polite. And I challenge him. I said, hey, Mr. Thez, how about you and I going at it here a little bit? For real. And Thez says, love it. So Dean pauses and he looks at me. Now, this guy was a Navy lieutenant that turned the tide at D-Day. Real stern fellow. Says, Luthez kicked my butt, Mike. I couldn't believe how quick he was. He moved like a cat. And he kicked my butt. And I became a Luthez fan that very night. 
And he says, I'd like to meet him sometime. I said, he's at my house right now. Are you kidding me? I call up Lou and Lou comes over. Those two became bosom buddies. <laughs> oh, wow. They, they loved each other. So, you no, know, I know all these stories, Brian, about the connections between the amateurs and the pros that nobody else knows. And just the fact that you had that kind of access to Thez is so incredible. And I'm sure that you're well aware of just what a, an honor that was and what a rare privilege to be able to speak to. I mean, I, I got to talk to him once or twice and and pick his brain, but to have the kind of access that you had is truly amazing. And, and it shows me to, you know, the story when you're talking about Rockwell and Idol, you know, idolizing Thez or idolizing Gotch, for example. Uh, the the thing about Gotch that I think it's important for people to remember is the fact that you know when enough time passes and things leave our living memory as a culture, it's easy to forget what the context of the time was. You know, because pro wrestling being what it is, it, it, the the history is not as well preserved as it should be, and in these days, it's so it's considered something very different. But in his time, Frank Gotch was one of the most famous people in the world, and and easily one and one of the country's first major sports celebrities in the way that we would think of it today. Um, and, and not only that, but really for a few generations of Americans and wrestling fans or otherwise. The name Gotch was synonymous with wrestling uh, to the point where if you talk to anybody from, let's say, the first half of the 20th century and you said who was the greatest of all time, like you said, without question, they probably would have said Frank Gotch. And those kind of perspectives, that's what you lose when enough time goes by and there's nobody around anymore. And that's why it's so important to preserve it because, you know, <laughs> I mean, we're so far from that today. And I, I don't mean to besmirch or insult any any modern wrestlers or anything like that. But, you know, if you ask most people today who the greatest pro wrestler of all time was, they're going to tell you either Hulk Hogan or Ric Flair or somebody like that. And it's not, you know, nothing against those guys. They're great performers. They're great entertainers. But uh, it's just uh, it's such a world of difference and such a cultural shift from, you know, the wrestling that existed in generations gone by. Absolutely, Brian, you're making an excellent point. And a lot of people love to be the one who tells the truth. Uh, Lincoln wasn't really shot by John Wilkes Booth. It was <laughs> by somebody else. John Wilkes Booth really didn't die in that barn fire. It was somebody else. Jesse James uh, was never shot to death in St. Joseph. It was somebody else. Lee Harvey Walswell didn't really shoot John F. Kennedy. It was a sniper behind uh, the, the wall there, the brown fence. I mean, there's people who just love to think they're on the inside. And attacking Frank Gotch uh, has become vogue in some circles. Uh, I want to tell you the story that this attorney told me. It was in his 90s when I was first up there interviewing him about Frank. And I says, did you ever meet him? And he says, oh, yes. When I was a boy, a bunch of us were sitting on a curb on a very hot summer day. And we heard a car coming around the corner, and there weren't very many cars in Humboldt. So we looked up to see who it was. There's Frank Gotch. Pulls over at the curb, and he looks down at us real sternly. He says, what are you boys doing, sitting there loitering? He said, well, Mr. Gotch, nothing, it's hot. And he said, well, if you're not doing anything, why don't you get in the car, and we'll all get, a, get ice cream cones. 
that we piled in the car and drove to the ice cream store with Frank Gotch, the world's champion. And this attorney's eyes starting to tear up telling me the story that Gotch was a soft touch for anybody in town that was raising money for anything. It all come to Frank Gotch and his wife and they, they supported everything. And you know, one of his famous statements and it's emblazoned on the back of the statue is um, I was born an Iowa farm boy. I was raised an Iowa farm boy and I'll die an Iowa farm boy. And Frank had all kinds of opportunities to move to the big cities and people wanted him to move to Kansas city or Chicago or Des Moines or wherever. And he says, Nope, my hometown's humbled Iowa. And, and Hodge was the same way. Uh, he never left Perry, Oklahoma. He was always Dan Hodge. So it's a bygone era, Brian, and a lot of people either don't understand it or refuse to understand it. And I get it. I really do. At age 79, I'm not going to sit here and stew over who thinks Frank Gotch was the best or uh, was uh, a cheater, because I know the truth, because I've studied his character and the era and the people and uh, do you want me to tell you the story about Joe Stecker and Earl Caddock's match in New York City that very few people know? I definitely do, because I'd love to talk about Stecker. But before you do it real quick, before I forget, I have to say this because we said it before we started recording. But people who are listening to this need to know that as you as we are doing this conversation, you are sitting in Frank Gotch's favorite chair. I am. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, he uh, he owned a beautiful home in the center of town. And after his match with Hackenschmidt, him and his wife Gladys went shopping. And he bought a white wicker table, which I own. It's sitting right here. And this beautiful burgundy rocker with an ottoman. And after Frank died, his wife remarried about eight years later. And she and her new husband lived in this house. And they had one child named Phyllis. And Gladys died, Frank's wife died fairly young too, like at age 50. And uh, Phyllis inherited the house, and she lived there till she was 86. And in the 1980s, she held an auction. She put up a huge uh, advertisement campaign and said a lot of these items were bought by my mother and her husband at the time, Frank Gotch. They have letters of authenticity. And I went up there, a lot of other people, and I bought a lot of stuff. And uh, let's see. I do here cer certify that this rocker was purchased by Mr. and Mrs. Frank Gotch, World Heavyweight Wrestling Champion, in the year 1911 at Marshall Fields in Chicago. And it remained in the same home at 110 Silk Street North, Humboldt, Iowa, until sold at auction on this date, June 29th, 1996. Signed by Phyllis Moffat daughter of Mrs. Frank Gotch. So I have that that framed and sitting on the wicker table and framed the other one sitting right behind uh, Frank Gotch's uh, favorite rocker chair. About five years ago, a guy called me up from Missouri. said, is it true you have Frank Gotch's chair? And I said, yes. Oh, Brian, I also have his derby hat that people have seen in that picture of him standing with Jim Jeffries, both wearing der derby hats. Yes, 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 yes. Minnesota. I own that hat. And uh, this guy said, Mr. Chapman, I and my two friends want to drive all the way up there. We will pay you $100 each, three of us, if we can sit in Frank Gotch's chair and have his picture taken. 
picture taken. I said, wait a minute. You guys are going to drive up all the way from southern Missouri, like five hours one way. You think I'm going to charge you to sit in this chair? <laughs> Come on up, guys. They drove all the way up here, sat in this chair, uh, saw the other stuff I had, uh, bought a couple of my Frank Gotts books, and left here that because uh, they got to sit in Frank Gotts's chair. So that's the kind of legacy that I want to see perpetuated. Uh, Frank Gotts uh, was is really special. Nat Fleischer, in his legendary book, From Milo to Lundo, said it was the popularity of Frank Gotts that started colleges across the country uh, going into the wrestling. And today, Iowa is known as the best wrestling state in the country. And uh, Penn State's still a lot of their thunder, but it's because of two men, Frank Gotch and Dan Gable. And it's just incredible. They both, last names start with G. They both have five letters in their last name. And when Gable graduated from Iowa State University as the best-known amateur wrestler of all time, he had the student teach, Brian. There's 365 high schools in the state of Iowa. He ended up student teaching in Humboldt, Iowa. And at that point, he didn't even know who Frank Gotch was other than just a name from the distant past. So there's Dan Gable after his incredible career at Iowa State, student teaching in Humboldt, Iowa, the hometown of Frank Gotch. Wow. Talk about a coincidence. Yeah. <laughs> that is that is crazy. Uh, but you know what? You You are very lucky to have the chair, and I can understand why people would want to travel that far to sit in it. But I do want to get to – I'd love to talk about Stecker because I think he's such a fascinating figure to me because he's somebody that – well, I mean, first of all, he has a, a, a tragic life story. But also, um, you don't hear – he doesn't get as much credit today as I think he should. And you hear people – you still will hear people, if you listen to the right people, talking about Gotch and talking about Hack and Schmidt or talking about – let's say Strangler Lewis or Jim Londus. And it just seems like from that era, Stecker is the one major, major star of that era that is not as well discussed as the others. I agree. And you can put Earl Caddock in that group too. Uh, Earl Caddock was three-time AAU national amateur champion, uh, was gearing toward the 1920 Olympics. World War I stopped that. He idolized Gotch. Gotch and Burns came down and talked to him. Uh, Burns talked him into trying pro wrestling. Uh, he was like 40-0 and 0 when he wrestled Stecker in Omaha for the world championship and defeated Stecker in a grueling two-and-a-half-hour match. Stecker was so exhausted he couldn't come back for the... Uh, they'd each won one fall. Earl goes off and fights in World War One. They want to make him an officer and have him recruit, and he said, no, sir, I'm no different than anybody else. I signed up to fight. He goes and fights in trenches along the Western Front, suffers lung damage, comes back, uh, and does wrestle Stecker in January of 1920 in New York's Madison Square Garden. So when I decide I'm going to induct Earl Caddock into our Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame the second year, the first class was, was Frank Gotch, Ed Strangle Lewis, Vern Gagne, and Luthez. Second class was... Uh, Joe Stecker, Okada, Dick Hutton, who we haven't even talked about. I can tell you a lot about how good Dick Hutton was, and Danny Hodge. Well, I had written Earl Caddock's sons out in Oregon. They're very wealthy. 
very reclusive and devout Christians. And I said, we're going to be inducting your father into the Hall of Fame. Is there any way you would come honor us with your presence? I never heard from him. About two weeks before the inductions, my wife calls me up. I'm downstairs in my office and she says, there's two gentlemen up here who want to talk to you. Won't tell me who they are. I walk up the steps, Brian, and there stands Bob and Dick Caddock, the sons of Earl Caddock. They said, we wanted to come anonymously and tour the museum. Our father did not like what happened to pro wrestling after he left the game, the sport. And we didn't know if he would want to be in this Hall of Fame. And we see what you have done here. He would be honored to be included. Because we had a whole section on the Olympic Games and Olympic champs and college champs and the Dean Rockwell Library and Research Center. And I said, oh, my gosh, I'm so honored. And we stood there and talked. And then they said, and we want you to have this. Make a copy of it and give us back the original. This is the best footage of his match with Joe Stecker. Chicago. And so I said, oh, you're giving me goosebumps. <laughs> so the ne- two days later after the inductions, I drove with him all the way to Walnut, Iowa, about oh, 80 miles straight west of here, a little tiny town where Earl lived and died. Died at the age of 62 of cancer. We went and stood at his gravesite. He was a devout Christian. And the gravesite says Earl Caddock, the date of his birth and the date of his death. That's a quote from the Bible that whoever believes us in the sons shall have everlasting life. Doesn't say anything about his wrestling, doesn't say anything about his military career. He became a businessman in Omaha, was very wealthy. And they looked at me, looked at each other, and Dick said, I'm going to tell Mike the story. This is what I'm going to tell you, Brian, you and your listeners. Earl and Joe wrestled in New York in 1920, and Joe won his title back. They went to the promoter's office the next day to get their paychecks. The promoter said to him, hey, guys, we're going to sell out every city in America. We're going to wrestle in Detroit, Kansas City, Des Moines, Omaha, St. Louis, everywhere wants to see you're one and one. You've each won one, uh, and it's the hottest rivalry in sports, Joe Stecker versus Earl Caddock. First cross the country, switch the title back and forth, and we'll all make a ton of money. Joe and Earl walked out together, two Midwest farm kids, walked down the street for about a block. Now, this is Earl Caddock's son's telling me this. Stopped and looked at each other, and Earl said, Joe, I can't do that. I can't deceive the public. I can't switch. I can't agree to lose and win back and forth. And Joe looked at him and said, neither can I, Earl. And they shook hands, and they never wrestled again. Now, if it was all about money, like some people claim, all that matters is the money. That's all they cared about. How come Joe and Earl never wrestled again? Because it wasn't about the money. It wasn't always about the money. When Dan Gable was the head coach at Iowa, he was making 80000 a year one year, and Oklahoma State, the arch rival, offered him to triple it. 
turned it down. He says, I'm an Iowan. I'm not leaving Iowa for triple the money. When I started the Wrestling Institute Museum here, Brian, I was publisher of the Newton Daily newspaper with all kinds of perks, country club membership, uh, courtesy car, gas card, and everything. I took a huge pay cut to run the Wrestling Museum because I wanted preserve the history of people like Frank Gotch and Earl Caddock and Joe Stecker and Dan Hodge and Luthez and Dick Hutton. And my wife, bless her heart, said, let's do it. So everything in life isn't about the money, Brian. Like some hardcore wrestling people say, it's always about the money. Yeah, money's important, but it wasn't all about the money for some of these people, including Earl Caddock and Frank Gotch. And it so seems that's to the best story I can tell you. That's an incredible uh, when story. Joe Stecker went into a, a housing development in St. Cloud, Minnesota for the, we, we, we call it now the, the uh, what do we call it? Assisted living. Right, right. He, he lost a lot of money in the stock market, wrestled a lot longer than he wanted to, lost a lot of matches, quote-unquote, to people who couldn't even carry his shoes into the ring. And he knew that he was being used to build reputations for people like Gus Sonnenberg and Wayne Munn and whoever. Uh, but he needed the money. When he was near the end of his life, one day a fellow showed up, asked to see him, and he went out on the back porch with him, and they played a game of checkers fellow's name we drove up to see him was Earl Caddock. Wow. These people had a great respect for each other, who they were and what they'd gone through. And uh, it's a different era. I'm not saying there's not respect out there now. Maybe now it is all about the money. But it wasn't well, always that way. I think maybe more now, and, and that's why people tend to have that uh, – thinking of well if it's like that now then that means it always was like that you know and and, and maybe right and, and, <laughs> because now you know obviously it's completely turned into 100% entertainment and and before that sure. you know there were the periods where it really was where the, the the fan base wasn't smartened up but it it was a complete con pretty much for, for part of wrestling's history where they were kind of fooling their fans yeah. But, but you know, there was a time where I think everyone who studied it to a certain degree would agree that there was an earlier time where there was definitely more legitimacy to it. There's just always been the question of how much. And that seems to be the thing that the thing that people disagree on. And I know, like for me with Stecker, because I've tried to really read and learn a lot about him. I really get the sense, like you said, you know, he wound up having to compromise so much later in his career. He was sort of down on his luck. He needed money. He was forced to work with people that maybe he didn't always respect and lose matches that we know he could have won against people that he could have beaten with an arm tied behind his back. And I think that that, and again, I, this is my own theory and belief. I think that that really took a very serious psychological toll on him. And I think that's part of what kind of led him to the, the struggles that he had later in life and depression and things like that. The fact that the business had treated him so poorly. I think you're exactly right, Brian. I, I think that sums it up. 
and when we inducted him, his daughter flew out from California. And get a load of this. This this is going to really hit your heart. They flew out, and she brought her grandson with her, or her son, who would be Joe's grandson, who'd played in NFL for a while. And at one point, the Steckers were there, and Earl Caddock's brother, sons were there. And I didn't introduce them to each other. And we all went into the big TV room. There were probably 100 people there, Vern Gagne and Luthez and everybody, and we had chairs. And I said, I'm going to show you one of the greatest examples of what wrestling was like in the 1920s you'll ever see. It's a 15-minute clip of Joe Stecker wrestling Earl Caddock. Turn out the lights, and we show it. I turn on the lights, and I said, all of you catch your breath. I would like sons of Earl Caddock to please stand, the daughter and grandson of Joe Stecker to please stand. They stood up and looked at each other, and you could people were gasping, and unbe- and those two families came together and hugged each other. At the banquet that night, they sat together. They never left each other's side. So there it was, the sons of Earl Caddock sitting with the daughter and the grandson of Joe Stecker. <laughs> and it's memories like that, Brian, that I ran the museum for 12 years. Uh, I, Bev and I fought our hearts out to raise money. We are out fundraising. and uh, Dean Rockwell was so pleased with what we did and called it the Dean Rockwell Library and Research Center. The last time he was here, he walked up to me and gave me an envelope, and he said, don't open it till I'm gone. I don't want you to get all mushy on me. <laughs> he walked out the door, and a little bit later, I opened it up, and it was a check for the Wrestling Museum for $50,000. Uh, when you see the impact, Dick Hutton, when I called him up to tell him he was being inducted, he couldn't talk. And he finally put down the phone and I, there's no nobody there. I said, Dick, Dick, are you there? And he comes back and he says, I had to catch my breath, Mike. You don't know how much this means to me. Uh, he lost 30 pounds to come up here to look respectable. And when wow. Luthez passed away, my wife, Bev, and I were the only non-family family members invited to go to St. Louis with Charlie, his wife, and a couple sisters and watch him scatter his ashes over a little stream that he'd grown up splashing in as a boy and so when Lou passed away we held a special tribute to him at the wrestling museum and both Luthez and Vern Gagne spoke and Dan Hodge spoke I want to tell I'm sorry uh, Dan Dan Hodge Dick Hutton and uh, Vern Gagne spoke and I want to tell you what Hutton said real quickly Hutton was a three-time NCAA champ four-time finalist and stood up and said, I want to say, I wrestled collegiately for four years. I wrestled pro for 12 years. Luthez is the best wrestler I ever stepped on a mat with. And he choked up. He said, I can't say anymore. He started crying and went and sat down. So it's memories like that, Brian, that that I, I haven't been involved in the wrestling museum for 10 years. When I left, I just said, I got to walk away from this. We moved it to Waterloo, named it the Dan Gable Museum. I ran it for three years. And then uh, Bev and I never left Newton. It's about an hour and a half drive. And I just said, there's too much emotion in there for me. So, And they've changed it a lot. They've got all kinds of, it, it, Our displays were more geared toward people 
in my age bracket. And it's all uh, video now and push buttons this and <laughs> interactive and that. And that's fine. But it's no longer the museum that Lou Fez and I uh, put together. In fact, Charlie Fez, two years ago when she went and emailed me, and she said, it's nice, Mike, but it's not our museum anymore. But I have all these memories, Brian, and they can't take those away, can they? No, they can't. And that's why I try to do shows like this, because I like to preserve them and I like to keep a record and I like to talk to people. It's one of the privileges of my life that I get to talk to people like you about these topics and and keep these memories alive. And even, even more important than the memories, to keep the perspectives alive. Like I said, these perspectives, uh, as we move forward in time, we run the risk of losing valuable perspectives, if that makes sense. And so I I, I thank you so much for, for taking time, giving me your time to really get into your perspectives on, on wrestling. Well, thanks, Brian. And I, I appreciate your attitude toward all this. And, and let me say, just because I'm so strongly opinionated doesn't mean I'm right. It's just what I firmly believe, searching out the facts as best I could, looking into the personality of somebody like a Frank Gotch and an Earl Caddock and a Joe Stecker and a Dan Hodge. Uh, you don't shoot on Dan Hodge unless you're willing to be beaten up and hurt. Uh, you don't shoot on Frank Gotch unless you're willing to pay the consequences. He learned how to wrestle by Leo Pardello and Tom Jenkins and people like that. And I'll close with one last quote. Ed Lewis was interviewed in Sport Magazine this wasn't for the marks. This was for the history of sport magazine and the history of sport. And in the interview, he says, maybe I wasn't a Frank Gotch, but I tried. Maybe I came the closest. At least I tried. But there's Ed Lewis saying how much he respects Frank Gotch. And when I read that quote to Lou Thez, who Lou thinks Ed was the greatest wrestler of all time, who said, wow. Um, I didn't know Ed felt that way about Frank Gotch right there in sport magazine. So anyway, this has been great. And I admire all the work you've done to try to keep uh, wrestling history alive. And, and I really appreciate you reaching out to me because this has been fun. And Brian, you have a standing invitation. You ever driving down interstate 80 in Iowa, let me know. And you can come sit in Frank Gotch's chair for free. All right. You mean I don't have to pay a hundred dollars? No, sir. Okay. And you, I'll even let you wear his derby hat. I hardly let anybody do that. The last person that put it on, I think, was uh, Dan Hodge. Well, you know, I've been meaning one of these one of these years. I've been meaning to come out to uh, to the museum in Iowa. It's it's the only one I haven't been to the Physical Wrestling Hall of Fame. And when I do that, let me tell you, I, I may just be taking you up on that offer. I'd love, I'd love it, and I admire your work, too, and uh, we'll stay in touch. All right. There you have it, folks. My conversation with Mike Chapman. And boy, do I think that was a valuable one. Mike, thanks again so much for coming on the show to share those views. These are the kind of conversations that I had hoped to have when I first began this show, just getting these opinions and viewpoints out there. I think Mike's views are important views. And I, I think anytime I get an opportunity 
to discuss some of the people and the eras that we got to discuss today. That makes me very happy. So I hope that you guys enjoyed that conversation as much as we enjoyed having it. And stay tuned for future conversations here on Shut Up and Wrestle because episode 53 is coming up next week and we are shifting the gears to have the wild and crazy, the wild and wooly Midwest independent wrestler Attila Khan straight out of the Southern Illinois Championship wrestling promotion. He was a childhood friend of Pat O'Connor. He was a student and protege of Harley Race. He spent a lot of time around some of the legends of the business, and he's going to be here to talk about it next week on Shut Up and Wrestle. So stay tuned. And some of the other guests we have in the weeks to come, Northeastern referee Dave Dwinell with lots of great stories and recollections of the 70s, 80s, and 90s, as well as WWF freelance artist and designer Tom Fleming, who created the looks of some of your favorite wrestling characters of the 1990s and beyond. Detroit area referee and promoter and lifelong chic fan A.T. Huck is on the way to shut up and wrestle, along with a few others, such as Dante Richardson from Inside the Ropes magazine, Barbara Goodish, the widow of Bruiser Brody, Lots and lots of great stuff planned. Shut Up and Wrestle is going stronger than ever, and we are glad to have you aboard. And you can find our show in so many different ways. We have our website, of course, suawpod.com. You can also find Shut Up and Wrestle wherever you find your favorite podcasts, meaning Podcast Addict, Spotify, Podbean, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, all those places, you will find Shut Up and Wrestle. So take a lesson. And also, when you're listening, you can join the Facebook group for Shut Up and Wrestle. That is Shut Up and Wrestle with Brian R. Solomon on Facebook. We welcome everyone there. There's always lots of great content that can add to your enjoyment of the show. The wrestling news, of course, every week. I make mention of that because we're all so proud of it here at Arcadian Vanguard. It's your daily morning newscast for wrestling. You can listen to the voice of Mike Sempervivi reading the words of Brian Solomon every morning and learn all there is to know about this crazy business at thewrestlingnews.com. Another podcast that I'm involved with is the Pro Wrestling Illustrated podcast, the PWI podcast, which you can find in all the same places that I mentioned earlier for Shut Up and Wrestle. So go there if you're interested in listening to myself and Al Castle and occasionally PWI Editor-in-Chief Kevin McElvaney as well. My book, Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real-life story of wrestling's original chic is still available in print, digital, and audio form. Get it on Amazon.com. Get it at Barnes & Noble. If you'd like an autographed copy, you can reach out to me at Brian R. Solomon at yahoo.com, and we will see if we can work that out. The magazines that I write for, Pro Wrestling Illustrated, get it at pwi-online.com. Inside the Ropes Magazine, you can get it at insidetheropesmagazine.com. If you happen to be looking for me on social media, you will find me on Twitter and Instagram at Brian R. Solomon. You can find my author page on Facebook at Brian Solomon Writer. And on any of those social media platforms, you will find the link to my author website on the World Wide Web. 
Shut Up and Wrestle is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. And as always, this has been Brian R. Solomon asking you to keep those cards and letters coming in and leaving you with the words of the Russian lion himself, George Hackenschmidt, who once said that health can never be divorced from strength. So long, wrestling fans. Fuck your